in Pakistan, everything, whether it is justice, whether it is law and order, whether it is security, whether it's healthcare, education, you name it, exists in a kind of wild, wild west sort of atmosphere, where if you are a sort of hard nosed, rugged individual with the right contacts and a bit of luck, you can make a huge fortune that no one will even know about because the government cannot detect your wealth officially. And you can keep all that wealth for yourself. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. It is impossible to understand Pakistan's political economy today without taking a look at the evolution of the country's institutions. In particular, it is important that we understand the decline of the civilian bureaucracy since independence and the role of the superior judiciary since the turn of the century. To talk about these topics, I invited Dr. Ilhan Niaz, Associate Professor of History at the Qaeda-e-Azam University. Dr. Niaz is author of The Culture of Power and Governance of Pakistan, 1947-2008, and has done phenomenal academic work to study the history and evolution of Pakistan's institutions. If you like our content, please do subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends and family, and follow our YouTube and Facebook pages by searching for Pakistanomy. You can also find us on Twitter by following Tabad Lab. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My guest today is Dr. Ilhan Niaz, Associate Professor of History at the Qaeda-e-Azam University in Islamabad. Dr. Niaz has a deep understanding about the historical shifts in Pakistan's political economy. He is author of The Culture of Power and Governance in Pakistan, 1947-2008. Dr. Niaz, welcome to Pakistanomy. Ah, thank you for having me. I want to begin by asking you about Pakistan's institutions and how they've evolved over the years since 1947 and your perspective on how has that evolution impacted Pakistan's political economy and its economic trajectory to this day? Well, there are a lot of, of course, institutions that uh, go into making uh, what we consider to be a state or a polity. Uh, you have constitutional and political institutions, you have bureaucratic institutions, you have the military, etc. Uh, and when we look at uh, Pakistan, one of the things which uh, we see is that many of these institutions, uh, especially on the civilian side of the equation, go into crisis fairly early in the country's history and don't really recover from that crisis. So in terms of uh, questions about, let's say, political economy, that is to say, what kind of political economy should we have? What sort of resource allocations we should have? What kind of policies should the government of Pakistan and the provincial governments pursue? Uh, in the model that we inherited from the British, decisions about these things were ultimately to be taken by the civilian political leaders who would have been elected and would have been part of uh, a parliamentary form of government. Uh, in the Indian context, that parliamentary form of government uh, took root in the years after independence and the civilian political leaders, rightly or wrongly, depending on your perspective, have continued to make decisions in India about what kind of political economy they want to run. Uh, in our uh, country, this transition uh, went haywire fairly early, 
And the result was that the party that had led the movement for Pakistan and formed its first government, that is to say the Muslim League, it practically had collapsed as a party of government by 1953 and power was transferred into the hands of the civil service and the military. Uh, at that time, of course, the civil service was the A team and the military was the B team uh, with uh, Governor General Ghulam Muhammad up front. So uh, you have an immediate shift in a sense that after 1953, whatever decisions were made about uh, how to pursue development in Pakistan were from an institutional perspective lacking in constitutional or democratic legitimacy. Mm. So the civil service and the military men who took over uh, in 1953 and then basically retained power for a long time thereafter, they felt Pakistan needed a strong authoritarian sort of state that would rapidly modernize the country, that would take decisions that were perhaps not possible uh, in a parliamentary form of government, which they felt was too gradual, too prone to compromises, too prone to patronages in Ayub Khan's words. And this sort of highly centralized setup a unitary form of government, a presidential form of government, etc., would be better suited to our national genius. So in this sense, our political institutions, our parliamentary institutions, our elected local governments, our elected provincial governments, uh, all of this setup is basically packed up during the first decade. And Pakistan then ends up directly under military rule. Mm -hmm. Now, the advent of military rule in Pakistan uh, in 1958 also has a tremendous impact upon the civil service because what happens is that uh, the Ayub regime basically starts to use the civil service as a class of political managers reference the basic democracy system. Hmm. And what this basically does is that it makes the Ayub regime very, very reluctant to embark upon modernization of our bureaucracy. Instead, what the Ayub regime does is that it expands the powers of the uh, British era successor to the Indian Civil Service. Uh, it ignores the advice of its own reform commission, the Pay and Services Commission of 1959-62, uh, which was chaired by Justice Cornelius and had basically argued that we needed to move towards a professional ministry, specialized type of civil service structure. And it relies upon uh, the CSP and other general administrators to deliver what it feels will be rapid development. And that will also help it manage the politics of the country in its own favor via the basic democracy system I refer to. Now, this kind of setup uh, blows up in the face of the military regime in the mid and late 1960s. Uh, in the eastern wing of the country, you have a full-fledged separatist movement by 1966-67. In the western wing of the country, about a year later, you also have a sort of left-wing populist rebellion led by the rising Pakistan People's Party. And what these rebellions, of course, basically do is that, number one, they lead to the breakup of the country in 1971, reference the secession of East Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And number two, they lead to the advent of the People's Party uh, in power in the western wing of the country, which then, of course, is the whole of the country after 1971. Now, when the 
People's Party takes over in December 71. It has, of course, inherited a grave crisis, uh, but it has also inherited a great opportunity. Uh, it has a chance to sort of reset uh, many of the things that have gone wrong over the last 20, 30 years. Instead, what the People's Party government ends up doing is, is that they actually weaken further the civilian bureaucratic structures of the state by politicizing them, by nationalizing industries and services and handing them over to them, by purging the bureaucracy repeatedly uh, during a short time frame. And what this again basically does is that by the late 1970s, when the army is poised to take over again, we have a situation where the civilian state apparatus, the civil service, the civilian bureaucracy has become far weaker than it was in the 1950s. So when the Zia military regime takes over, it keeps martial law in place for a very, very long time. It sees that it is to its own political advantage to abandon the goal of modernizing Pakistan and instead decides to try and Islamize it. And what this in turn does is that it also makes your society a lot harder to govern. It makes it more violent. It makes it more flush with you know, weapons and drugs and all sorts of other uh, disruptive tendencies. So we end up in the situation where our civilian institutions, political during the first decade, bureaucratic during the 70s and 80s, they go into a deep crisis from which they don't really recover. And that essentially leaves the military as the only effective functioning part of the state. But the military itself, when it comes to power, as it did under Zia and then as it does again under Musharraf, it does not actually have any interest or any inclination to reform the civilian sectors of the state. Because if you start to actually improve the quality of the civilian bureaucracy, if you actually start to improve the quality of uh, civilian institutions, constitutional bodies, etc., you then end up in a situation where it would become harder for the military to get its way on a lot of internal policy matters that it enjoys preeminence in. Hmm. So you end up in a situation where the civil service leadership is okay with institutional decay because they don't want to abandon the generalist pattern of administration. The political leaders are also okay with our institutional decay because they are not willing to part with, in the short run, a portion of their ability to interfere in the day-to-day -day working of the state in exchange for a long-term reward in terms of a recalibration of the civil military balance in their favor by developing institutional capacity on the civilian side. And of course, the military uh, does not have its interest served by a resurgent civilian state apparatus or a resurgent civilian state elite. And as long as the civilians themselves are not willing to help themselves, the mm -hmm. military can by default basically, uh, if not by design, remain uh, in charge of much of the country's actual decision-making. So that is where we basically end up, that when you think of Pakistan as a state, what you basically see is that over the last 70 years, our civilian institutions in general 
have become hollowed out. And our military institutions have, in relative and some might argue in absolute terms, become far, far stronger. And that imbalance operates at the administrative level, it operates at the political level, and it makes it very difficult for any government, however well-meaning that government might be, to implement policies that actually lead to an improvement in the circumstances of ordinary Pakistanis. That's very interesting and comprehensive. And as you were describing this long 70-year decline of civilian institutions, um, I was just thinking about what's going on even today. Um, So for example, uh, someone shared with me a list of heads of Suparco. And the last four or five heads of Suparco, for example, have come from the military. Um, Before that, there were PhDs in physics and astrophysics who were civilian. Um, Similarly, the Naya Pakistan Housing Society, uh, the new leadership of that organization or that structure are also from the military. Um, So I guess even to this day, when we talk about a transition to democracy, we continue to see the primacy or a growth of the primacy of the military as an institution, primarily because of that decline that you just described. Um, One of the things that for me, have changed when I look at history um, is the role of the judiciary, um, particularly since the turn of the 21st century. Um, and I want, uh, wanted to ask you about how has that evolved? Because I was reading a paper of yours that described uh, fairly comprehensively about how the judiciary has shifted from being part of, you know, supportive of the military over the years to being a different beast altogether. It hasn't reformed itself, one could argue, uh, but its role has shifted tremendously in the last few years, um, particularly when it comes to interference in the affairs of the executive on the economic and the political front. Uh, So just wanted to hear from you about how that role in your perspective has shifted um, in the last few years. Well, when it comes to the judiciary in Pakistan, what we basically see is that you can divide our judicial history Uh, into two broad periods, uh, up to 2005, basically, and after 2005. And uh, up to 2005, what we generally see uh, in our judiciary is that when it comes to constitutional questions, when it comes to questions about protecting the rights of people, when it comes to general questions of public policy or public welfare, Uh, the judiciary defers to the executive, both the civilian executive and also uh, the military executive when that is in power. But after 2005, we see a major shift taking place. And I would basically think that this shift lies at two levels. Uh, One is, of course, that the leadership of the judiciary starts behaving differently than it does than it had before. But the second part of this shift is perhaps more structural in nature. Uh, this is something which I also discuss uh, in terms of uh, General Musharraf's policies in terms of liberalizing the media, liberalizing civil society, uh, liberalizing the telecom sector, etc. Uh, creating basically in Pakistan for the first time a mass market Uh, for uh, communication 
which was not directly controlled or rationed by the state. So between, you know, 1947 to 2002, basically, uh, if you're familiar with Pakistan in that sense, you know that there was hardly anything uh, by way of non-government or non-rationed telecommunication or uh, ability to communicate. So that opening mm -hmm. up actually creates uh, a kind of public awareness, a public expressiveness. And what the judiciary starts to do in 2005 is that it starts to do what the people want through its actions. So the people want pe members of the executive to be held to account. Uh, the people want to see powerful individuals uh, sort of uh, pilloried, humiliated, uh, brought in front of somebody who can ask them questions. Because the civilian bureaucracy has lost its autonomy long ago, the political parties, they are either too compromised or they're too co-opted to perform this role. But the judiciary sort of stands out in this uh, landscape and it starts to use its constitutional powers, which are there, but it starts to use them in a very populist way. And that leads to an upsurge of popular regard and popular support for the judiciary. And that then strengthens the judiciary in terms of its dealings with the other arms of the state, whether it's the civilian government, which becomes an increasingly soft target, or even when it comes to a military government, which proves to be a harder target, but is nonetheless something which is constrained by the operation of the uh, judicial authority. Now, some people might have thought, okay, you know, this is something idiosyncratic. It is something which is, you know, there because of Chief Justice Rodri Iftikhar and his approach. But his successors very quickly also realize that the clout that their institution enjoys is not due to its ability to deliver justice in the day-to-day -day level. It is due to its ability to harness popular resentment and popular desires and turn those desires against the government, against the rulers of the day, by turning, you know, courtroom number one into a sort of popular forum in which the learned judges take up matters of public interest and then grill members of the executive, grill members of the leadership over their arbitrary and unjust actions. So in that sense, the image and narrative and discourse of the judiciary change and interface with a genuine popular longing to see powerful people in Pakistan held to some kind of an account where all the executive institutions, all the legislative institutions basically seem to be in cahoots or incapable when it comes to uh, delivering that sort of justice that people desire. And that is a very, very important change because it makes the judiciary more of an independent power player. Uh, in fact, I would basically argue that uh, today, in terms of Pakistan's internal political power dynamics, uh, the military remains number one, uh, but I would put the judiciary at number two hmm. and the civilian government and the civilian bureaucracy at a very distant number three and number four in terms of its ability to actually get things going or uh, get something done 
by turning its attention to it. And do you see that that power when you put the judiciary at number two um, in terms of trends in the last few years, is that growing more of the same? Like I'm thinking about, you know, if you're going to be the next populist chief justice of the country, perhaps you want to uh, record or put out your feed live to the people so they can watch it or tune in to watch the drama essentially and be more populist in that nature. So do you see that? Uh, power of the judiciary growing or remaining much of the same when it comes to the military and the civilian institutions? Well, I think uh, the judiciary uh, in Pakistan has achieved a kind of equilibrium in the sense that it is strong enough on occasion to challenge the military though it generally does not do so, but on certain issues, it still manages to do it and get away, gets away with it. Most of its ire, however, remains directed at the civilian executive and the civilian political leadership, which are admittedly soft targets uh, compared to the military. So I would say that the judiciary understands and accepts that it is now number two when it comes to the uh, power dynamics of Pakistan, and that the gap between number two and number one is so great that it can't really become number one, but it can still be strong enough to impose costs on number one if it does things that are too much to the disliking of the judiciary. So there is a kind of, uh, let's say, balance of terror between the judiciary and the military on certain issues. Hmm. That's interesting. And so one of the things that I can grasp from the the discussion so far is that in many ways, the turf battles that have occurred since 1947 have been elite turf battles where the military has been the predominant uh, player and has continues to be so. The judiciary in the last few years since Iftikhar Chaudhary has emerged, uh, where, whereas the civilian leadership uh, continues to be a distant third and continues to weaken. Um, and in that context, so for example, in the last couple of years, we had the Pakistan Tariq and Saab come into power uh, with a very weak majority and with a, with a disputed election, to say the least. Um, and it, it brought about a commission led by, doc, a task force led by Dr. Ishid Hussain to reform the civil services, right? Now, from your historian's perspective, how do you see that desire or at least that stated desire to reform the bureaucracy? And do you see this as just another task force and more platitudes that talk about reforming the bureaucracy? Or is there any real substance behind what this government at least is trying to achieve? Well, I have uh, said this before, and I'll say it again, reference uh, Dr. Ishrat Hussain. Uh, in that he has been involved in the reform process in Pakistan uh, since the Musharraf military regime. Mm -hmm. And he's had nearly two decades uh, at the helm as uh, Pakistan's reforms are. And during that entire time period, uh, no fundamental reform of our civil service structure has actually been forthcoming. Uh, under the current government, again, uh, when a government takes power, uh, it has a certain amount of political capital, which it can expend. Uh, what tends to happen in Pakistan is that rather than 
doing something and there is no need to reinvent the wheel. So, I mean, if you want to reform the civil service in Pakistan, uh, you simply take the 1962 Pay and Services Commission report of Justice Cornelius and you make such adjustments as are necessary, obviously, and that's how you modernize uh, your bureaucracy without, you know, doing anything fancy, without bringing in that many consultants or any other such thing. It's all there in our archives. It's all there in our uh, previous reports and commissions. Uh, so in Pakistan, we tend to then set up these task forces and reform commissions. And in the amount of time it takes them to come up with any recommendations, assuming that those recommendations are sensible, uh, the political capital needed to push through reforms has been lost. So by the time a reform report or other such things are issued, it's basically too late uh, to do anything about it. Uh, then, of course, the thing to also understand is that the way in which our civil service is set up makes it very hard to carry out reforms because of internal politics within the bureaucracy. So within the bureaucracy, there is a broad consensus that we need reform. But the minute you propose something specific that will diminish the power of any one set of individuals or increase the benefits or other things of other individuals, you immediately end up in a logjam. And this is something that has been going on in Pakistan for a very, very long time. So we've had lots of excellent reform proposals since 1962. And those reform proposals generally don't get implemented uh, because the bureaucratic vested interest does not basically uh, want them to. So within the bureaucracy, the reform constituency is not strong enough. Uh, within the political leadership, it is also not strong enough. Uh, the military as such does not have an interest in reforming the capacity of the bureaucracy. So you basically end up trapped in this situation where everybody says they would like the civilian bureaucracy to perform better, but no one is actually willing to implement any decisions that would enable it to perform better. Hmm. The other, of course, issue with this is that we are in a hurry to deliver quick results. Whereas any serious reform of our civilian bureaucratic structures will require a time frame of about 20 years, hmm. which is well beyond the duration of any political government or even any military government. Military government yeah. So like you would need basically all of the political parties and the military to have a kind of charter on administrative reform and agree that, okay, regardless of who is in government, this is the kind of civil service we would like to see. So whoever comes in power, we're going to continue with these sets of reforms, continue pursuing these sets of reforms, uh, so that after 20 years, we actually have a civil service that is modern, professionally organized, and capable of actually delivering something uh, on the ground. Well, yeah, that's, that's you know, interesting that you mentioned the same vision that I sort of talk about when it comes to the economy, because you have so many structural issues that it is not 
the job of one government or even two governments to execute on these structural reforms. It needs 15 to 20 years of consistent vision and agreement on what those look like uh, to reorient the economy. Um, speaking of which, um, in a seminar I was watching, you referred to uh, Pakistan as a narco-libertarian state, and I found that very interesting um, because you know people often say Pakistan is over-regulated, and then you explain that you know, it, it may be overregulated on paper, but in reality, if you're strong and powerful, you can carve your way out of those regulations. Um, and I want you to just explain uh, what you mean by a narco-libertarian state and, and how does that function in the Pakistani context? Right. Uh, I was actually uh, in that seminar responding to a specific uh, assertion uh, made by the moderator that uh, Pakistan is subjected to a permissions raj, uh, which stifles our entrepreneurship and economic growth and all sorts of other things. And uh, the thing of course is that uh, the assertion by the moderator is a classical example, I would say, of uh, the neoclassical economic circular reasoning in which any imperfection in economic outcomes is attributed to the inability of the market to operate with maximum freedom. But mm. since the market can never be 100% free, you will always have imperfections. So as a historian, I don't look at an economy as a theoretical model or a deductive ideal that ought to operate smoothly and deliver outcomes. Uh, historically, economies have always been mixed, they've always been messy, they've always produced unintended outcomes, some good, some bad, uh, and they've also sometimes produced good and bad intended outcomes as well. So historically speaking, uh, you don't actually uh, have an economy that conforms to any kind of ideal type of what a market ought to do or can do. Now, in the context of uh, Pakistan, when we look at the structure of our state, when we look at the effectiveness of our state, what we basically see is that there is minimal to non-existent regulation in real terms mm. of health, safety, quality of infrastructure, of quality of education, uh, of labor laws, of basically anything that would inhibit the ability of people to make good profits. And there is also a lack of taxation and a lack of ability to detect uh, taxable wealth on part of the bureaucratic machinery. So in Pakistan, what you have is a situation where you can get away with the libertarian ideal of the freedom to harm anybody else in the pursuit of your own profits. Hmm. And this in turn means that whether you are the owner of a retail outlet, whether you are the owner of a brick kiln, whether you are the owner of any kind of capital in Pakistan, you can circumvent the rules and regulations as needed to the extent that anybody will bother to enforce the rules and regulations on you in the first place. So this leads to all sorts of distortions. 
for example, we don't really know how big our GDP is because so much of our consumption and saving and investment takes place outside of any official channel. Uh, we have uh, little idea of what to do with the millions of Pakistanis that are de facto enslaved labor conditions. Bonded mm. labor is rampant in Pakistan. Entire sectors of the economy depend upon bonded labor, such as construction especially depends upon bonded labor. The brick kilns are the uh, main employers of bonded labor in Pakistan. So in Pakistan, you have a very sort of interesting political economy. And this model of political economy was actually described very effectively by Azir Nadeem in his 1999 book published by the Oxford University Press called Pakistan, the political economy of lawlessness, mm. in which he basically describes and explains how the absence of any real regulation means that in Pakistan, everything whether it is justice, whether it is law and order, whether it is security, whether it's healthcare, education, you name it, exists in a kind of wild, wild west sort of atmosphere, where if you are a sort of hard-nosed, rugged individual with the right contacts and a bit of luck, you can make a huge fortune that no one will even know about because the government cannot detect your wealth officially. And you can keep all that wealth for yourself. So in that sense, I would say that the state of Pakistan is extremely weak when it comes to enforcing uh, any kind of regulation. Yes, the state of Pakistan does do some things very well. So for instance, I would say that our defense sector is very tightly controlled and regulated. But outside of the defense sector, it's basically a jungle out here. You do what you want. Uh, you know, people say that, uh, in fact, in that uh, seminar, people were talking about how uh, permissions are not given for high-rise buildings. Uh, I live in an apartment block in Islamabad, as do many others. There is, I think, hardly a single high-rise building in Islamabad, the federal capital, that actually has a proper no objection certificate and completion certificate from the CTA. But here I am living in one and people are buying and selling apartments left, right and center. Nobody's stopping them. Uh, nobody's bothering them. Uh, if they get into a bit of trouble with the taxation machinery, they can easily get out of it as well mm -hmm. using either Sifarish or other means. So where is the state really? In fact, my problem in Pakistan is that when I go to shining chemists to buy medicine, I don't know if I am buying medicine that is real or fake. Mm -hmm. When I go to the mechanic and I need to get a spare part from my car, I have no idea whether it is eight number or two number or three number or even char number, uh, the stuff that he's putting in there. So there is no regulation. There is no law over here. Who is enforcing anything on anybody? Uh, you can just get away with it, basically. So in Pakistan, it is incredibly difficult to enforce the law in any meaningful, rational sense. And it is incredibly easy to get away with subverting the law and the rules that exist very dignifiedly on paper, but are basically 
aspirational, not functional aspects of our reality. No, that's interesting. And I fully agree with you. And, you know, the thing I was thinking about as you were describing high rises in, in Islamabad, I, was, I grew up in Karachi. So I was thinking about Beria town and what happened with the Supreme Court in that instance, where I don't recall any, in my memory, at least the Supreme Court legalizing occupation of poor people's lands by saying, now that you've done it, pay a fine to the government and all is regularized and all is forgiven and forgotten simply because you happen to be a real estate mogul, in this case, Malik Riaz, uh, who happened to have the power and the connections to occupy that land and build a multi-million rupee uh, empire on that land and sell plots to people. And just today, um, this morning, I was reading a story where you know, now the government has taken away the requirement of having no objection certificates uh, for launching new real estate projects and collecting advance payments for that. So again, there is, you know, it's the law of the jungle. You can take out ads and collect people's money without having any real teeth behind your business process uh, proposal in terms of a construction project and probably get away with it scot-free because there is no regulation. Um, the one place where you know, you mentioned distortion. I wanted to get your perspective on this because sitting on the outside when you describe this uh, uh, perspective and which I agree with largely is that the distortion that's created is that for a country like Pakistan, attracting foreign investment and multinationals is very important. Um, and given the rule changes internationally in terms of foreign corrupt practices, acts, etc., cetera, um, the investor will probably, foreign investor, will probably shy away from being part of this state, right? Where there's lawlessness, where you have to spread the money around to get your way. Um, do you think that one of the issues with this structure is that the formalization or the participation in a global economy then becomes very, very difficult as we have seen in the case of Pakistan, uh, because there is the law of the jungle and foreign investors will be loath to participate, at least the ones that are from Europe, US, Japan, Korea, etc., um, in such an environment? Well, uh, I am a little bit skeptical of uh, these assertions because when we look at neighboring India or Bangladesh, which have almost identical indicators on effective government regulation, on law and order, on tax to GDP ratio, etc., etc., uh, there you have plenty of foreign investment coming in. Mm. And I would suspect that the presence or absence of foreign investment, uh, while it may be influenced by our, uh, let's say, lawlessness, uh, it is not necessarily the only thing that is keeping foreign investors away from Pakistan. Uh, I think that the basic problem which Pakistan faces vis-a-vis -vis foreign investment is not necessarily lawlessness or the weakness of the state in the sense of ability to enforce regulations, etc., which is very weak in India, very weak in Bangladesh as well. I think the problem that we have in Pakistan is that relative to countries that were in our per capita peer group at one stage, we underinvested so badly in health and education that the labor competitiveness 
of our workforce vis-a-vis -vis the labor competitiveness of workforces in let's say Vietnam or Southeast Asia or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or even India mm -hmm. uh, became so skewed in their favor that it doesn't make sense for uh, somebody who has a choice between putting money in India or putting money in Bangladesh or putting money in Pakistan to put money in Pakistan. So that I think is one uh, element that perhaps we tend to uh, miss out on. Uh, that, you know, our labor costs might be low, but other countries that have comparably low labor costs have much better uh, health education indicators than we do. And if you are a foreign investor, you would probably want to invest where you can have a literate labor force, where you can have a labor force whose you know, basic health is better, so you know, less liability falls on you than you would in Pakistan. So that is something which we have over here, uh, one element to this. But then again, I'm not an expert on foreign investment. Uh, we have had periods where there was a considerable amount of foreign investment. So between 2002 and 2007, there was actually quite a bit of FDI that came into Pakistan, especially in telecommunications and in banking. I think in 2007, uh, Pakistan's FDI was more than 3 billion US dollars. Uh, and after that, it has declined. It is now mm -hmm. well below 2007 levels. So we have been able to attract foreign investment. Uh, for that period of time. But in the absence of underlying competitiveness of the economy, of the labor force, you're going to have a very hard time, uh, you know, competing against others that were in your peer group. Now, that's a very important point because, you know, one of the things I've looked at over time is how Bangladesh's, for example, ready-made garment sector bypassed Pakistan over the years. And the human capital element is visible over there because not only did they have high labor force participation from women um, as part of the rise of that sector, their women were better educated. So, you, you know, even if you're stitching a shirt, you have to follow basic instructions. And in a country like Pakistan, women aren't really part of the labor force as much as Bangladesh uh, in this instance, and they're poorly educated. So you're not going to have the same levels of productivity uh, comparatively between the two countries. And so Pakistan, which is a cotton producing country or used to be in, for a number of years, um, lost out to Bangladesh, which was an importer of cotton just because of the human capital competitiveness. So that's a fair point. Um, uh, to end this, you know, from your perspective, looking at what's happened since 47, you talked about the commission reports that are out there that need to be implemented. Uh, from your point of view, given the state of the country's political economy and given the need that it needs to become you know, more inclusive and there needs to be more sustainable growth for the country to progress, uh, what are some of the two or three changes in terms of reforms that you would like to see uh, in the coming years? Um, maybe not over 20 year period because Pakistan's political climate does not allow for that to at least begin the journey towards a more inclusive national political economy. Right. Uh, <clears throat> the thing is that, I mean, history uh, tends not to be a prescriptive discipline uh, in terms of, you know, what specific thing can you do to solve a specific problem? Uh, in fact, uh, historians tend to be very pessimistic because one <laughs> of the things that history teaches you 
is that every solution you implement simply becomes a problem you have to solve later down the road. Uh, so historians tend to have a very dim view of human nature and the human experience. Uh, economists, I suspect, are far more optimistic when it comes to assessing. <laughs> uh, having said this, there are actually uh, several reforms that Pakistan can introduce that would help it a great deal uh, I would say maybe not in the short term, short term, but certainly over a period of time that is reasonable. Uh, the first thing, of course, is that when we look at development outcomes in other countries like South Korea, like China, like Vietnam, like Japan, etc., there are two things which stand out uh, in terms of their modernization experience. The first is that these countries invested very heavily and in a very timely manner in building and operating very competent civilian bureaucracies that could implement development, number one. Number two, countries like Japan and China kept strict controls on capital outflows during the time that they were industrializing, during the time that they were developing. So if Pakistan is to start somewhere, I would say the first thing that we need to do is that we need to seriously build our civilian bureaucratic capacity. And that of course is a very complex undertaking. It has many, many layers. Uh, it's not something which can be, you know, summarized in, you know, one or two minutes. But the core dysfunction that our civil service suffers from is that its internal management is arbitrary. It is not done on the basis of any rational or moral principles. Hmm. Uh, what this basically means is that throughout our civilian bureaucracy, people are appointed, transferred, even if they're recruited on merit, they are appointed and transferred and posted based almost entirely on considerations other than suitability. So if we want to begin to rebuild our state machinery, the first thing that we have to do is that we need to basically follow the advice that was given way back in 1985 in the context of police reforms, the Aslam Hayat Commission report of that time, in which they basically said that, look, what we need to do is that we need to insulate the bureaucracy from direct day-to-day -day political interference. Mm -hmm. It is only then that we'll be able to actually tell who the good civil servants are and who the bad civil servants are when it comes to performing their tasks. Nowadays, if you're a police officer or a DMG officer or a PS officer in Pakistan, you're likely to be posted out maybe twice a year on average. So even if you are the you know, best meaning, best educated person in the world, you are not going to be able to deliver because you're just not there long enough at any given post. You get uh, transferred out too quickly. So the first thing we need to do is that we need to stop the arbitrary transferage. 
This is something which has been advised to successive governments since 1985. Uh, it was advised again in 1995. It was advised again in 2000 to the Musharraf regime that what you basically do is that you place decisions about posting and transferring people into the hands of a neutral body, a constitutional body that will review all posting and transferring decisions made by the government hmm. and will have the power to countermand them if necessary. Now, what this will basically do is that it will take away a lot of the power from senior civil servants in the establishment division and the prime minister's office. And of course, it will take away a lot of power from cabinet ministers and other members of the uh, ruling party. But what it will do is that it will actually allow a stabilization of our state machinery. Once that state machinery is actually stabilized, then you can actually monitor and evaluate government officials and start making decisions about who goes where on the basis of their actual competence and ability to deliver results. And this reform doesn't cost any money. It doesn't cost, you know, any great amount of time. It can be done simply by an executive order in the short term issued by the prime minister. And we can get to work on this right away. The second element, of course, is maybe more tricky. And that is that Pakistan needs to regain control over the flow of capital into and out of the country, uh, both formal and informal channels. Uh, there is simply too much money floating into and out of the country that nobody knows how it's getting here and how it's going out. Uh, you mentioned uh, the fine imposed by the Supreme Court on Malik Riyadh. If I remember, that fine was in excess of 400 billion rupees. Correct. 400 billion rupees is what, like two and a half billion dollars, roughly? Yeah. Somewhere Which is about what 1% of our GDP. So the Supreme Court imposed a fine equal to 1% of our GDP on a businessman who would happily pay that fine. Which gives you some idea of how much money he actually has. So you will have to sort of break with the whole neoclassical consensus and go back to the situation where we had capital controls in our country. If you do these two things, then we can move to questions of what policy to implement, how to improve productivity, how to improve healthcare, infrastructure, etc., etc., is so that we can start to develop our country. If we don't do these two things, I would argue that nothing else will really matter. You can start paying civil servants more, but if you're transferring them every six months, they still won't be able to deliver. You can improve the standards of recruitment at the FPSC, but if civil servants know that in a 30-year career, I'm going to be transferred 45 times, nobody is going to work to deliver mm -hmm. anything on the ground. So that is where we actually have to start looking at these things. But again, uh, every time these proposals have been made, and they have been made in our past, what we have seen is that the IFIs shoot down any idea of capital controls, 
and your local political and bureaucratic interests at the senior level shoot down any attempt to impose discipline in terms of the establishment functions of the government. So there are no takers for these two proposals. Uh, but if you know, I were to dissect as a historian where we went wrong, I would say we went wrong because we liberalized our capital system while effectively making our administrative system totally whimsical in its personnel management. And between these what, two, we get torn apart. Those are, I think, valid and interesting recommendations. The second one, I agree that IFIs will push back, particularly you know, given Pakistan's reliance on the IMF. It's a tough battle to fight. Um, but even there, there is low-hanging fruit, right? So you mentioned the informal economy and how money flows in and out through informal channels. Um, that is something that FATF and others have been trying to get Pakistan to get a grip on for a number of years now. Um, and Pakistan has not done it because of political issues and patronage, etc. Um, so one could argue, right, that the money that was, you know, the deal that was made in the UK related to Malik Riyaz and that money came in, no one even talked about it at length, about how that money went out, why did it come in, who was involved in it, that was just hushed up. Um, and that's something IFIs will not mind because they want to have documentation around that. I remember growing up, uh, hearing my grandfather's story about how gold was smuggled out on boats to Dubai when Dubai was going through its first boom because it was built upon the smuggled wealth of the Indian and Pakistani diaspora in many ways at that point in time. And to this day, we hear about properties outside of Pakistan that are built upon laundered wealth and Pakistan can do something about it. Right? That is a form of capital control. And maybe we need to start there. But um, I fully agree with you that that inability to control the movement of capital and then direct it towards productive uses in the country um, rather than parking it in illicit assets like plots where no one can track the wealth um, is a big barrier to overall development um, in addition to human capital and the issues with the civil service. So this was a fascinating discussion. Um, I learned a lot in terms of the long arc of Pakistan's political economy and its history. Um, so thank you for taking out the time and hope you and the family are safe given coronavirus and have a good rest of the day. You too. You too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.